0: We choose unity over division. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts.
1: Hey folks, this is Frank Reynolds and this is the rugged individualist podcast, unlike Joe Biden. This is the podcast where we actually embrace truth and fact. So <laughs> he is a trip. So folks, I want to talk to you a little bit about today, uh, an article I read by Victor Davis Hansen. If you don't know who he is or, or are not familiar with his work, Incredibly uh, brilliant man, a historian, and uh, he's featured on Fox News quite often, and uh, he writes prolifically in a lot of different uh, publications. And I encourage you, anytime you see something he's written, please read it. It's smart, it's uh, cogent, and it gives you a different perspective that you will get and a lot of other uh, writers. Uh, Davis uh, is a uh, lifelong uh, resident of Fresno County, uh, California, which is what you would call the birthplace or the landing spot for all of the uh, Dust Bowl refugees that lived left the Midwest, Oklahoma, and such as that during the Dust Bowl era, and uh, ended up in California in the Valley uh, area, doing agricultural work uh the grapes of wrath if you will and uh, he has a very unique take because he lives amongst uh minorities and workers and uh, the average joe like you and I and uh, anytime he talks about the average person it comes across so uh cogent so smart that I just felt that I needed to share this with you and What this is is an article that he wrote for the American Greatness uh, website. And the title of the article is called, let's see here, Class, Not Race, Divides America. And honestly, uh, I think he's exactly right. It looks like a lot of people think we are in a race war. And, you know, if you look at it superficially, yes, we, we could be. But it's actually more of a class war that we're all living under. Because when you think about how things are playing out, is it not the rich and privileged that are actually agitating far more than the average person that's just trying to make a living and keep their business afloat and feed their family and pay their mortgage? That's what I see. So I want to read a little bit uh, from this article and uh, talk to you a little about my take on it. Uh, and I think this this little excerpt here kind of sums it up to a large degree. It says, Hansen writes, The clingers, the deplorables, the irredeemables, and Joe Biden's dregs have very little in common with those who so libel them, but superficially share, supposedly, Omnipotent and similar skin color. Just because we're all white doesn't mean we're all part of the same group. The poor white dirt farmer in Appalachia or the mechanic in uh, West Texas or the homemaker in Nebraska whose husband works a job bringing home $10 an hour are not in the same league or in the same class as Leonardo DiCaprio or Gates or Buffett or you pick whoever you can think of that's white and powerful, and influential, Pelosi, Dick Durbin, any of those people, okay? Okay. They're not, we're not of the same class and they know that, and they really don't want us to be part of their class. They like keeping us separated. They like dividing and conquering. Okay. Let me, let me play you a uh, clip it from what Joe Biden said recently in an interview. They're probably anywhere from 10 to 15% of the people out there. that are just not very good people. Who do you think he's talking about? Do you think he's talking about, uh, minorities or do you think he's talking about us? And when I say us, I don't mean based on race. I'm meaning based on class, based on who we support, what we want out of life, the amount of power we have over our life and the amount of power they have over what they can do to us. When you listen to many commentators, some even supposedly uh, on the right, they refer to people that happen to be Trump supporters or people like you and I rugged individualists who just want to be left alone to do the best we can to make the best life we can, not be victims, not whine about everything, but just unshackle us to allow us to achieve as much as we can. They talk about us or refer to us as toothless rubes at Trump rallies. Everyone remembers Peter Stroke's comments about being able to smell the Trump supporters at a South uh, Virginia Walmart or just the palpable condescension that you hear when people refer to, you know, Duck Dynasty people or NASCAR fans. They really don't like us. They don't respect us. And they really want us to take a knee. And that's the one thing we're not going to do. We should not apologize for who we are. We should not apologize for... What we've done or doing, we should be allowed to do the best we can, freeing us to be the best we have the opportunity to be through our hard work and ingenuity, instead of having to cater or bow to some woke mob who has really never accomplished anything on her own and certainly does not care about you or I. Hansen writes, We have reached the real point at which the nation's privileged whites on campuses such as Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, in the top echelons of politics, and the corporate and entertainment worlds all deplore in the abstract something they call white privilege and others who have never really experienced it. What he's saying is all of these celebrities all these corporate titans that are putting out these videos or statements saying, I apologize for my white privilege. I apologize for being successful and getting ahead in this world. And fine, if that's how they feel, good on them. But they want to turn around then, look at you, factory worker, truck driver, mechanic, what have you, guy stocking uh, in lumber in a lumber yard, and say, now you need to go ahead and take a knee and apologize for your white privilege. And you look around and say, well, I'm working with most of half the guys I work with on the crew are minorities. And I don't think any of us feel all that privilege. We're lucky we have a job. We're happy to be working and earning a living. But as far as privilege, I kind of earned this. I, I got this thing. So all of these uh, so-called elite, the upper crust, our betters out in Hollywood and in the media and politics really need to just kind of pipe down and quit doing these weak, insincere, genuflecting uh, in front of the mob to say, oh, please, please, you know, uh, forgive us for being, you know, successful what they're really doing is is they're looking at the wolves that are eating everyone and just saying, please eat me last. I'm getting a lot of uh, emails from companies I do business with online and all of them are saying kind of the same thing. I'm sorry that I've uh, been a racist in the past. I'm sorry that I've had racist tendencies and I intend to do better. Now they don't say that per se. They're, talking all this uh, mumbo-jumbo, you know, we understand diversity and we haven't been as good and as attuned to the world as it is and we're sorry and we're going to do better. So When I read that, you know, what they're telling me is they're saying, okay, well, we we're a racist or we have some racist uh, thoughts and tendencies and uh, we're going to do better. My response is, well, I'm glad you told me. I didn't realize you were a racist in the past, and I don't like to do business with racists, so I won't do business with you in the future. It's all the way to the point that Dan Cathy, CEO of Chick-fil-A, does this ridiculous stunt that embarrassed not only him but the other participants there. You could tell by the video they were very, it was very awkward, that he gets down and shines the shoes of this black entertainer. And the, even the black entertainer is like, uh, yeah, you really don't have to do that. Why did he feel compelled to do that? Is there something he's hiding that we don't know about? I don't think that Dan Cathy's a racist, but I think he's a chump by thinking uh, I have to get down on my hands and knees, and basically beg forgiveness for something I may or may, may or have may not done. I, I don't know. But it's really kind of uh, sad to see the people doing these things. We have nothing to be ashamed of. I've done nothing wrong, and you've done nothing wrong. There are racists in the world, of course, and of course we condemn them. But the vast majority of people... <laughs> don't look at other people through the lens of color. We look at it as do they do a good job? Are they nice guys? Do they treat my kids well in school? I mean, do they get along on the playing field? What's the metrics we use? Is he or is she a good person? Do they treat us well? And we kind of need to get back to that. Well, um, but the, The biggest thing is they do all this and then they get furious at guys like myself and many others who refuse to take a knee. The average person, the man and woman out there just trying to make a living, the mechanics, the truck drivers, the delivery guys, the the school teacher, the people that are just trying to get ahead and make the best life possible that's never discriminated against anybody, that's never used their position to hurt anyone, and they've used their God-given talent and work ethic to get ahead. Suddenly they want us to take a knee and say, hey, I'm sorry for being successful. I'm sorry for achieving what I have because I only did it because I'm white. Like, Like you won it in a lottery. And guess what? I didn't win it in the lottery. I worked my tail off and you've worked your tail off a lot of years to achieve this. So when you see people in the the media talking about how property is not violence, well tell that to the person who owns a store say in New York city that's lived in a small apartment above that store for, for the last 40 years building that that business up and putting their kids through school and trying to survive and spending every waking moment working in this store, because this is their life and it's destroyed, it's looted, it's vandalized. And they basically between the COVID shutdown and the looting and rioting have lost everything. If that's not violence against someone's life, cause their life has just been taken away. Their life has been destroyed. I don't know what is. So you know, it's it's really, it's really disheartening when you hear people say these type of things, and it's it's stupid too. It's just stupid on top of that. So, with that, Hanson further writes that talking about the the white elites, they certainly did not enjoy. The affirmative action of the white elite defined by familiar networks of like professionals, alumni influence, money, quid pro quo, interning, incestuous leveraging, and good old boy favoring. He's talking about you and I, people that are just trying to get by. We never had those advantages that other people had. But you don't see them going around begging for forgiveness. Well, they do beg for forgiveness, but they want you to beg for forgiveness too because uh, you're, you're a bad guy because you've done well for yourself. Now, as I've said earlier, I'm a retired FBI agent and I spent 10 years in the Army. And by some standards, people would say, well, you know, you're part of the power elite because, I mean, how many people get to be FBI agents? And that's exactly right. I worked a lot of years to become an FBI agent, and when I was accepted to become an FBI agent, it was—I thought it was about as likely of to happen as uh, me becoming an astronaut. It just did not seem like that would ever happen because I come from the Appalachian Mountains of East Tennessee. My dad was a paper mill worker in Monroe, Michigan. I was born in Monroe, Michigan, uh, lived there till I was nine. But my dad, uh, my, my dad's dad, my grandfather left East Tennessee and took what was known back then as the hillbilly highway from East Tennessee and Kentucky up to Detroit in, in, you know, Southern Michigan to work in the car factories. My grandfather, uh, Frank, I'm named after him. Grandpa Frank moved up there and, uh, took a job with Ford and, uh, raised a family and uh, he eventually left Ford and uh, moved over to working at a paper mill and my dad was born legally blind. He was born with a condition where his retinas would microscopically move, you know at a very very fast rate to the point you couldn't you couldn't really see it yourself but what caused that, to the, the result of that was that he could never really focus his eyes on anything, so he, he could see, but it was like looking through a fishbowl with three or four layers of uh, plastic sheeting in front of it. It was very, very dim, very hazy, very blurry. But back in the, the 40s and early 50s, there was not much uh, they would could do for someone in my dad's position, so dad took a job where Grandpa Frank worked at the paper mill, and he started working there at the age of fifteen. He worked there for twenty five years, and then until OSHA was uh, started and in, uh, signed into law in nineteen seventy and took effect in nineteen seventy one. At that point, everyone had to take a physical exam. Dad knew he was never going to pass the physical because he was virtually blind. He had not uh, ever had an accident at work. And in the paper mill, especially during this period of time, it was not unusual for someone every six months or so to lose a hand or finger or occasionally an arm in the machinery because it was uh, very dangerous work. Dad never, never got hurt because he took his time. He looked very closely and he was cognizant of his limitations. So he compensated, overcompensated by being very safe. Fast forward, when he knew that he was going to lose his job at that point, he decided to go ahead and take retirement under social security disability because he is disabled. Now I come from a family of six kids so we got six kids, a mom and dad, and we moved to Tennessee because it was far cheaper to live there than in Michigan because dad was drawing approximately $500 a month Social Security to feed eight people. And even by 1971 uh, uh, dollars, that still is not much. That's, you're, you're pretty much in poverty level. Dad never took food stamps never went on welfare because his pride wouldn't allow that. But what we did was we sold our farm in Michigan, bought another farm in Tennessee, and we worked it. We grew our own food, raised our own livestock, pigs and cows, and had chickens and grew a huge garden, and we raised tobacco. And Dad eventually bought some farm equipment and uh, started working for other farmers, baling hay, cutting hay, plowing, planting. Because at that point in the time in East Tennessee, many of the farmers, most of the farmers were still using horses to do, and mules to do their farm work. They were still operating like they were in the 19th century instead of the 20th century. And dad saw an itch in a business opportunity and he did very well for himself. He made a, a, not a lot of money, but he made enough money to supplement what we had. But we still did not have much. So I came from a very blue-collar background. I joined the Army to get out of East Tennessee because I knew that was probably my only chance to get out of East Tennessee. I went to college on uh, Pell Grants and work study and a few minor uh scholarships granted by the university. That was my one chance to get out. Was I privileged? Yeah, I was given the privilege of going to go into school and I was helped along the way by some, some fantastic people that wanted to see me succeed. But I had to do the work myself. I had to work a lot, you know, raise tobacco, taking part-time jobs, working and work study. And when my work study, it was not like, oh, you were stacking books in the library. No, most of the buildings on my campus were still fired by coal-burning furnaces. And my job was to feed the furnaces in the wintertime and then take out the ash and spread those on the, the roads on the outer part of the campus and to do maintenance work and build Uh, things. So yeah, it was, it was not, uh, you know, I was working in the cafeteria. I was, I was out there humping and that's fine. That that's was my lot in life. And I was doggone glad to have it, but you know, to consider myself privileged, I was privileged enough to have the opportunity to become successful. That was my privilege. But you know something, we all have that opportunity. That's just not me, you know? So when I hear everybody talking about privilege and their lack thereof, you know, really, the whining gets a little bit tedious. So remember this. We have very little culturally and socially in common with these so-called white elites from the East and West Coast. And, you know, they feel the same about us. They don't think they have anything in common with us. So the idea that we all have this moment where we all collectively nod our head and say, well, at least we're all white and we're all part of the same group, that doesn't really happen. They are not part of us, and they certainly don't want us to be part of them. Because to them, class matters much more so than race. Uh, Hansen writes, Class matters, not superficial commonalities of race. Lower middle class or poor whites are more likely to live among poor minorities than our elite high-income whites, whose experience of the other is often confined either to career contacts with wealthy minority professionals of like tastes, education, backgrounds, and values, or their brief conversations with their own gardeners, housekeepers, and nannies. And man, that's about right. I mean, if they do have an interaction with uh, minorities, it's because that they happen to either have them work for them, or they're of the same professional or educational class. They're not out there talking to the average black guy, or Hispanic, or Asian barber. They are talking to their peers. You know, poor whites, and I know this for a fact, are far more likely to live amongst minorities than they are you know, uh, rich whites. You don't see uh, the poor guy That's barely eking it by because he's working at Lowe's, uh, stacking boards, living amongst the people that have the uh, gated estates. And I think that's why the Democrats and the left are so infuriated with Trump and his supporters because we're crashing their party and we're upsetting their apple cart and they don't like it. Hansen writes, one of the reasons that the left and the Democrat party feared and hated the Trump movement was that its emphasis on class rather than race, a more fluid and potentially more dynamic appeal and one with the potential to unite rather than divide those of different tribes. Because if you don't think that the Democrats are trying to segregate people and make them tribal and pit one group against the other, then you've not been paying attention. That is their uh, stock and trade. That's what they do. And they're deathly afraid that Trump is going to actually get more black votes than he even got in 2016. Everyone remembers or most Many people remember that Trump said a very simple but powerful question to the black voters. He said, "What have you got to lose by voting for him?" Just like Reagan when he asked, "Are you better off today than you were four years ago?" It's the same type of simple question that makes people stop and say, "Huh? Yeah, that's that's a good question. What do I have to lose?" Because so far. I haven't. Uh, my plight hasn't improved over many, many decades. Uh, unemployment's still high. Wages are stagnant. Uh, the uh, the potential for opening new businesses and being successful as a minority continued to diminish. The welfare state continues to grow, and more people are more dependent on that. And you want to say, at a point it's like. Where is this all taking us? And this is no way to live. So by asking that question, that really scared them. And Trump actually ended up with more black votes in 2016 than previous uh, Republicans that had run for the president. And he may even get more votes this next time. And here's the thing if Trump got another four or five or 6% of the black vote on top of what he got the last time, the Democrats would stand almost no chance. They are relying on a monolithic black voting block to stay in power. So Hanson writes, whatever Trump was, he talked to blacks as he talked to everyone else, same accent, same mannerism, same vocabulary. He was not going to feign a black pathos and pander in Joe Biden's style of put y'all back in chains or you ain't black or reinvent himself in the Hillary Clinton fashion as a civil rights veteran possessed of a phony drawl. I don't feel no ways tired. I come too far. Think of the logic driving these white liberal elites. Blacks cannot understand my good English. So I will descend and descend into their poor grammar, diction, and syntax Defend y'all and ain't in no ways tired. But it's not only the Democrats that are concerned with race, or not race, but class, and have written off a large portion of the population. Republicans have too. Uh, do you recall Mitt Romney's 47% uh, comment? Romney said, there are 47% of the people who will vote for the president Obama, no matter what, because they are dependent upon government. They believe they're victims. They believe the government has a responsibility to care for them. And these people who pay no income tax. Now, here's the problem with that. He's writing off a large block of people and calling them victims, but he never considers this. Many of those 40 per 47%, 47% didn't earn enough money to pay income tax or were unemployed and looking for work or were disabled or sick. But in his mind, they were not redeemable. They were not people that he could reach out to and touch. And why is that? That's a mind frame of a man. It's like, they're of a different class than me and they would never understand me and I could never understand them and nor would I ever stoop so low as to try to court them. Trump on the other hand has, he reaches out to people. You may hate him or love him, but there is one thing about Trump. He pretty much talks to everyone the same way. Not always nice, not always polite, but I think the man truly is consistent in that respect. And he has reached out to the black community. He has reached out to minorities and uh, he doesn't pander to them. And there's no reason to pander to them because they're not stupid. They're not uh, of a, a frame of where you have to talk to them like they're children. And that's what happens all too often. They, they think they being, the Democrats or the rhinos, the upper crust, think that we're all children that need to be led. And that's patently false. Let me you know, play you a clip of Candace Owens. Uh, if you don't know who she is, she's a uh, conservative uh, black female, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate. And uh, she has gone out and uh, stood firm on uh, conservative values. And she's been very outspoken about Black Lives Matter and race relations and uh, how people should look at their situation and try to not feign a victim mentality and pull them up, themselves up by the bootstraps. Sounds like trying to be an individual, uh, rugged individualist. This is when Candace Owens was uh, testifying in front of Congress, and this is an exchange between her and Senator uh, Ted Lieu from California, total whack job. So I want you to listen to this. I don't know Miss Owens. I'm not going to characterize her. I'm going to let her own words do the talking. So I'm going to play for you the first 30 seconds of a statement she made about Adolf Hitler
0: I agree I I actually don't have any problems at all with the word nationalism I think that it gets uh, the definition gets poisoned um, by leaders that actually want globalism globalism is what I what I don't want so when you think about whenever we say nationalism the first thing people think about in at least in America is Hitler you know, he was a national socialist, but if Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay, fine. Problem is, is that he wanted, he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking German. Mr. Owens, I'm sorry. We just started a recording. Um, would you like time to respond to that? Yes, um, I think it's pretty apparent that uh, Mr. Liu believes that black people are stupid and will not f- uh, pursue the full clip in its entirety. He purposely presented an e- extract, an extractive clip.
1: The witness will suspend for a moment. It is not proper to refer disparagingly or w- to a member of the committee. Uh, the witness will not do that again. witness may continue. That's Jerry Nadler, sure. the Even penguin. Is called despicable. Um, the witness may not refer to a member of the committee as stupid.
0: I didn't refer to him as stupid. That's not what I said.
1: That's not what I said at all.
0: You, you didn't listen to what I said. May I continue? Please. As I said, he is assuming that black people will not go pursue the full two-hour clip, and he purposefully extracted, he cut off and you didn't hear the question that was asked of me. He's trying to present as if I was launching a defense of Hitler in Germany, when in fact, the question that was asked of me was pertaining to whether or not I believed that Hitler was a, whether or not I believed in nationalism, and that nationalism was bad. And what I responded to was that I do not believe that we should be characterizing Hitler as a nationalist. He was a homicidal, psychopathic maniac that killed his own people. A nationalist would not kill their own people. That is exactly what I was referring to in the clip, and he purposely wanted to give you a cut up similar to what they do to Donald Trump to create a different narrative. That was unbelievably dishonest, and he did not allow me to respond to it, which is worrisome and to tell you a lot about where people are today in terms of trying to drum up narratives. By the way, I would like to also add that I work for Prager University, which is run by an Orthodox Jew, and a single Democrat showed up to the embassy opening in Jerusalem. I sat on a plane for 18 hours to make sure that I was there. I'm deeply offended by the insinuation of of revealing that clip without the question that was asked of me.
1: That pretty much sums up what the Democrats think of black female conservatives. Because she's a conservative, they think they can diminish her. Because she's black, they probably think she's stupid. And that they can discount her because she's a female. Do you think it's just her that they're looking at? It's anybody that steps outside the orthodoxy of the mainstream liberal narrative that blacks are supposedly dependent upon them and they need to be helped and taken care of. We all appreciate help, but none of us need to live in this hammock, and none of us need to be treated as shabbily as she was. This is what they think. This is what they believe. They really don't care about minorities. They don't care about the average person. They care about their, their group, themselves, their family, their ilk, their, their club, And whatever's left over for us, eh, so be it. I want to play one more clip. And this is a little bit long, but this is a, uh, a street preacher uh, that ventured into the uh, Seattle Chaz uh, section, the uh, Capitol Hill autonomous zone. And uh, she was dropping some real truth bombs and, uh, not everything she says uh, is completely, you know, historically maybe accurate. But I think there's a lot what she said that actually should make people stop and think. So I want you to listen to that for a second. Yeah, voting
2: right now, like, what the hell do we do? <laughs> like, voting like right now.
1: I'm- that uh, is a question being asked by a uh, white waspy female protester in the occupier of the Chaz zone and she's asking and the the audio is a little bit bad but she's asking uh this uh african-american female uh preacher well what should we do who should we vote for she's wanting guidance from her she wants basically permission from her to who she should vote for she wants her to tell her who you should vote for. So this is not the answer she expected.
2: Yeah, voting right now like what the hell we
1: do <laughs> like, listen voting like right now i'm gonna be honest yeah. with you i'm gonna be honest
2: with you if i watched cnn nsbc and all of these fake news channels i would be in the same position you are in so i'm not even mad at you baby i'm so feeling like any news cuz it's all a fake news this is the thing i know people don't like trump i understand that but let me tell you something, if I had to pick between him and Joe Biden, I'm not voting Absolutely. in Joe Biden. You wanna see you wanna see a bunch of black people go to jail by the next four years? Put Joe Biden in. Watch what happens. You wanna see black men get killed substantially? Like, they, like you've never seen before? Put Joe Biden in and watch what happens. These Democrats, and I'm sorry to say this, I'm not trying to be racist, but they hate black people. These are the same people who fought to keep slavery in. These are the same people who built the KKK. These are the same people who hated us from the beginning. The Republican Party is the party of the blacks. Blacks leave The Republican Party is the only party that the black people actually assisted in finding. But all of that history has been torn away. People say, Oh, there was this big switch. There was never a big switch. The union the union won because we had grown in the industrial area era. So we were able to get trains and get supplies back to our soldiers while the confederate was still riding horses. They were not able to get the supplies back fast enough, right? So what happened was once slavery was abolished, in the south, the people in the south could no longer make their money from slaves, they had to move to the north to work in the industry to produce. And so the people in the north that already had established themselves in the industry moved to the south. And so that's where it was a transfer of people coming from the south to the north and people coming from the north to the south. There was never a big switch. so the same Democrats who hated Black people from the beginning are the same ones who hate us now, and they use our cause. How did Black Lives Matter turn into something about LGBTQ? When Blacks really don't support that, we're conservative. We ain't about that. We're really not about not that. About that. Not only that, we don't support abortion. We don't working. support abortion. We're, this it's is a black culture. We it's ain't even been about that. Not only that, we're not about feminism. No, we're not. Black women marry their husbands and respect their husbands. That's oh, what we're well. we on. We're not on this. Oh, I, I do what I want. We don't no. do that. That's not our community, and you would understand. I know you understand what I'm saying. Come on, We don't do that. But do yet these that? people are hijacking our movement, and the Democratic Party, they're that trying that? to hijack our stuff. No. Look at the hands who played a part into why we sit here right now.
1: You will never hear that voice on CNN or MSNBC or ABC, CBS, NBC, any of those outlets. That voice is never going to be allowed to be heard. I heard her on Fox news and I looked her up. And when I listened to it, it it's like, you know, two things struck me. That lady that asked her, what should we do? Wasn't expecting that answer. And what she said is something that a lot of people believe in the minority community, I believe, and uh, needs to be heard more often because she's speaking from the heart. Let me finish this uh, uh, Victor Davis Hanson article up with uh, two more uh, paragraphs, the last two paragraphs, and I think this kind of rolls everything together. He says, instead, why not commit to real change? Why do we not segregate Sidwell friends with the schools from the inner city and of lower classes? Why Why do not our actors, the Pelosi grandchildren, the scions of the Zuckerberg Gate and Bloomberg families, All vow to place their offspring in public schools, to become personally engaged with the less fortunate, and to pledge that their own fates will hinge on those of others. One can write a check for a million to the anti-Semitic and racist Al Sharpton and his charity, and therefore do far less than simply tutoring one inner-city teen or taking him on a personal intern to advise him on how to get ahead in America. Indeed, why not eschew the third home, the walled compound, the private jet getaway, and instead have a second home in an inner city or Latino suburb or among the rural hamlets of Central Valley or Western Texas? People do not want tele a telecondescension, but rather face-to-face dignity. And the dignity comes from being treated as an equal and a partner, not as a cause. Man. That pretty much says it all right there. So, all right, let's uh let's change this up for a second. This has been a little bit uh heavy, and I want to uh read you a uh, posting that a friend of mine put on Facebook, and uh, I just read that and it made me uh feel a little bit better about life. And this is, we really need to be optimistic. Uh, We live in the greatest country in the world and we have the potential for having some of the best years ahead of us, as long as we're smart and we do the right thing. So I want to read you this and as a way to to send us off for another week says, sometimes I just want it to stop. Talk of COVID protests, looting brutality. I lose my way, become convinced that this New normal is real life. But then I meet an 87-year-old who talks of living through the polio, diphtheria, Vietnam protests, and yet is still enchanted with life. He seemed surprised when I said that 2020 must be especially challenging for him. No, he says slowly, looking me straight in the eyes. I learned a long time ago not to see the world through the printed headlines. I see the world through the people that surround me. I see the world with the realization that we love big, therefore I choose to write my own headlines. Husband loves wife today. Family drops everything to come to grandma's bedside. He patted my hand. Old man makes new friend. His words collide with my worries, freeing them from the tether that I'd been holding tight. They float away. I'm left with renewed spirit. My headline now reads, Woman overwhelmed by the spirit of kindness and the reminder that our capacity to love is never-ending. And that's what we need to hang on to. Write your own headlines, and uh, be happy. Be joyful. Take care of your family. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your life. This is not the worst time ever, and we don't have to let it be. we got to think for ourselves. we got to be smart and willing to challenge conventional wisdom. All right, folks, that should do it for today. I really appreciate you listening every week. Uh, please keep subscribing and spreading the word to your friends. Uh, post it uh, on your other social media sites and let other people know about what we're doing here. Uh, you can subscribe uh, on any of the normal platforms that you have uh, that, where you get your podcasts. Uh, also, leave a five-star review if you like it. i uh, getting a, a few, but I'd like to get a few more because that helps moves us up the chart and we're a little more visible and iTunes, so more people can find us and, uh, keep, keep your head on a swivel. You know, we've been through some hard times in the past and, uh, we will in the future, but we're all in this together and we can, we can do this and just hang in there and, uh, be cheerful and, uh, take care of yourself. So I'll talk to you soon.